You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. With COP26 now behind us, we have to make the most of the wealth of built environment initiatives and knowledge sharing that took place in Glasgow. Despite the excruciating disappointment of India's last-minute intervention to swap phase-out coal for phase-down coal, there has been an incredible momentum in the built environment with numerous reports which set out what needs to be done with much greater clarity. On Friday, I facilitated an all-day workshop for Architects Declare founders Hayworth Tompkins, in which the whole practice came together for the first time since before the pandemic to brainstorm their roadmap to 2030 with specific markers and targets along the way. Every built environment professional needs to think big, challenge the brief, think beyond the site boundaries of their projects and push for regenerative outcomes. COP27 starts now. In this next series, we are turning our attention to the subject of reuse. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. I'd always advocate reuse of a thing before recycling, because any recycling process is going to create a carbon footprint. The issue of having secondhand things, making a new thing, those secondhand things are with their histories and the narratives associated with the second hand is amazing. You just get this additional complexity and variety and way of creating. Just imagine if you've got the best designers in the world only mining the Anthropocene. What would you get there? Today we are speaking to one of the UK's leading climate champions, with a particular focus on the circular economy and material reuse. Duncan Baker Brown will need no introduction for many of our listeners. Based in Brighton, Duncan has combined teaching and practice for almost three decades. He is the author of the Reuse Atlas, published in 2017, a seminal text for designers on the circular economy. Duncan, I can't even remember when I first met you, but I've always known that if I needed someone to tell it to me like it is, I could rely on you. And for many years, we were lonely voices. And when, along with my colleagues at the AJ, we asked you to give the keynote talk at the AJ100 dinner in 2019, I knew things were starting to change. People have different routes into sustainable design, and you have pioneered work on material reuse. How did you get started down this path? Actually, I spent quite a lot of time initially focusing on material sourcing and looking at naturally sourced organic materials because, um, yeah, I I realised pretty quickly that to get well-insulated, well-sealed buildings, people would do with plastic and synthetic materials and we're getting sick building syndrome as a consequence of that, so headaches at the end of the day. So... From our first project in 1994, which is the RIBA House of the Future, we were trying to eliminate plastics and trying to eliminate toxic materials. So we built a lot of uh, projects, schools, office buildings and, and residential projects using organic materials. Lots of different options to insulation, sheep's wool, recycled cotton and hemp. I was thinking in terms of embodied energy and healthy 
buildings and well-being. But then I sort of realised the amount of waste that the construction sector generated. And I just felt like there's this big pile of waste, not just with the construction sector, but with everybody, with humankind, piling up behind me and I've been ignoring it. And so after that, I was really interested in raising awareness of the amount of waste that the construction sector attracted and generated. I mean, in still today, 60% of all waste going to landfill incineration in the UK is from the construction sector. And it's 120 million tonnes. And that's a lot of stuff. It's really shocking. We had an opportunity to build down at the University of Brighton, where I teach. And we gave ourselves the challenge of just using construction waste to create a building that performs at Passive House uh, levels of performance, but also, crucially, that involves students in the design and the construction process. So it became, this is where I mixed research, teaching and practice. But we decided to change the emphasis of the Waste House then because we were building it on campus and ultimately it'd be a sort of learning resource and laboratory for designers, architects, product designers, artists. We thought, why don't we make this thing a sort of vessel containing products without an end-of-life strategy, so a lot of plastic stuff, and raise awareness of the fact that, for example, the, the walls are hollow, and in between the columns of the frame, we've got these boxes full of stuff, and that stuff could be 4,000 VHS video cassettes. I mean, who knew they were still around? They are. They're on planet Earth. They haven't disappeared. We realise that most plastic ever made is still with us. So before we go any further, I want to ask you one other thing. You recently rebranded your practice to Baker Brown Studio. So what was your motivation to do this? Well, I've always done more than one thing at a time. So it's always been teaching, research and practice. And I was realizing over the years that the practice and the research and teaching were pulling apart. In a way, I was getting better known as a, as a researcher and an academic what I really wanted to do is re-establish myself as a research-led practice, not a practitioner that happens to do research. And I also just think that the moment has come. Since publishing my book in 2017, it had got such a lot of interest. And since then, it's just been very, very busy. So we are architects, but we are also consultants to other design teams. Because I've been fortunate enough to combined practice and research. That research time has allowed me time to think and develop uh, and research at the end of the day. It's sort of a time that most practitioners don't have. So I realized this in a quite a privileged position, but also that with that in mind, developing the book, writing the books, I've got another one I'm doing next year. So that's what the new practice is about. So if there is such a thing as an expert consensus on how to build sustainably in the UK, it would be to reduce operational emissions to within strict limits and then to tackle embodied carbon and upfront emissions by taking a circular economy approach. For example, Letty's Climate Emergency Design Guide talks about a circular economy and has targets to reduce embodied carbon to, for example, 600 kilos per square metre for office blocks. So one approach to meet these embodied carbon targets is to use ordinary materials like steel or concrete and perhaps some timber, but to do so more efficiently. Simon Alford was uh, recently on our podcast explaining how some AHMM projects are hitting 500 kilos per square metre using concrete slabs with GGBS in the mix. But your approach to the impacts of building materials is, is very different. You've described it as mining the Anthropocene. What does this entail? When I talk about mining the Anthropocene, we reuse the stuff that's already created its carbon footprint that's already been manufactured by humans. 
I preface that sometimes by saying we closed our minds. We don't need minds anymore. We've dug up enough stuff. We've got mountains of stuff. We live in some of that stuff and we throw a lot of that stuff away. Architects have a duty of care. Exercising that in a profound way means I don't want slave labor. I don't want child labor. And I don't want people who are poorer than me in a hole trying to get copper or whatever it is. So if you take that out of the equation, what are you left with? You're left with the stuff that's been mined for the last 250 years and in particular the last 40 years and even the last 10 years, we're going exponentially higher. You know, 10 years ago, humans were extracting 50 billion tons of raw materials annually. Now it's 100 billion tons. So a third of that is thrown away just in manufacture or even more. That's what mining the Anthropocene is. It's finding the stuff that we are treading over to get to the mines, metaphorically, to get this new stuff, when actually we might as well just use the old stuff. You've been working on this now for over a decade. Where do you see the reuse agenda gaining the most traction right now and why? Okay, there are two things that are happening at once. I do think retrofit's been taken seriously, and obviously retrofit is all about adapting the existing built environment. I'm hoping the government are about to have a different position on retrofit to the one they have at the moment. People are gluing their hands to the tarmac, protesting in the name of insulating Britain. I mean, can you believe such a dull strap line for a direct action campaign? It's amazing. So I think it's very heartening. It's, it's exciting times, but it's because it's so important. So reworking the existing built environment is all about reuse, not blowing up a, a tower block, but adapting it and not blowing up all those resources and then digging up more resources to build the same thing. I think most people, most local authorities around the world, uh, city mayors, whoever, uh, people in charge of regions understand that retrofit is a surefire way of enabling a big part of your net zero targets to be met. The other thing is happening a lot in, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, so Northern Europe, there is an emerging network of organizations who are deconstructing buildings that would normally be demolished. And from those buildings, you get a source of secondhand material. You know, I'm working on a, uh, a EU interreg funded project at the moment where the outcome next year will be a directory of 1,500 suppliers who deal with building deconstruction and crucially deal with the integration of that secondhand material into the supply chain. So, yeah, you've got people like the Lendica Group in Denmark, you've got Rota Deconstruction, who've transformed themselves. They're, they're based in Brussels. In 2010, they were artists, academics, and interior architects. They curated the OMA retrospective at the Barbican, they curated the Belgian pavilion at the Venice Biennale. So they've got this sensibility, but it's always been around the reduction of consumption of resources. Now they just deal with deconstruction and advising design teams on how to reuse materials and resources because they have the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure and the digital databases to deal with buildings being deconstructed and into their components. And then those components need to stay somewhere. But what's really interesting is they're working on buildings as large as tower blocks in, in the World Trade Center in Brussels. I know another organization I'm dealing with in Paris, they're part of the team deconstructing the interiors and the facade of the Montparnasse Tower in Paris. 60 stories of stuff being deconstructed and introduced into the supply chain. Um, Arabs are doing it. So what would you say would have to happen in the UK across 
procurement regulation systems in, in general to to enable a reuse approach to be the main way of doing things here? I think writing into law the carbon descent, whole life carbon descent plan that you mentioned, Letty, there's a lot of different organisations buying into that. I was on a call this morning with the local authority building control. They've got no power at the moment to uh, enforce anything that those guidelines are proposing. So we need the correct legislation to support that whole life carbon descent plan. Then when you look at, oh my God, I've only got this amount of resource to build that thing that normally takes five times as much resources, how am I going to do it? So tell us about the Netherlands, what they've legislated there that's driving change. Yeah, okay. Well, um, they've got regional and national initiatives designing out waste, not just in the construction sector, but Amsterdam wants to be uh, zero waste by 2035. And it's been around for eight years now. So if you've got that sort of ambition and you've got the city bureaucrats insisting on it, then if they're commissioning projects, they're going to have to show how they're meeting this criteria. So there are lots of examples of new buildings being designed using uh, secondhand materials and also crucially being designed so they're material stores for the end of their lives. And it's where the research is going on for you know, the idea of material passports. This is information that a, a building owner or facilities manager has that gives them half a clue to how to dismantle the building and what is the building, what constitutes the building. The leading consultants uh, who are doing detailed resource maps of whole cities, are, for me, they're in the Netherlands. It's meta metabolic and people like that. So there is this information there, out there now that you can plug into. So that information makes the economics of doing much more viable because you're not having to go and do the resource mapping yourself. You can just plug into this data that says, right, if you're in that district of town or in that building, this is what you're working with. So keep that on site, reuse that element and recycle that bit. So you're saying all this has happened in eight years. So it takes, you know, in five years, you can start to see significant change. Having that sort of legislation, there's circular economy strategies for the whole of the Netherlands as a joined up entity, and that's how it needs to be. Then you're forcing behavioural change in, in an industry. And like I said, with waste, it's obviously you're dealing with water, energy, food, clothes, you know, fashion, you're dealing with the whole thing. So it's, it's really shaking up lots of industries. And so there are lots of examples of what we need to be doing are you optimistic that it can happen here? I think um, you caught me mid-COP. COP26 is more like OPEC 1973, as far as I can see. It's just they've just committed to deforestation for the next 10 years. They've just committed to burning fossil fuels for the next whoever you're talking to between 10, 20 or 50 years. So, you know, it's a commitment to do the wrong thing for an amount of time at the moment. I'm optimistic. Uh, yeah, because I know there's the knowledge out there. There's the, and it, we just half the time need a bit of joined up thinking. But if the amount of positive user guides that are coming out at the moment, networks of people beyond their own their own practice. So you know the great thing about Letty is a great case study because their first climate emergency design guide had the input of a thousand people across different sectors and it was just put together in such a clever way with amazing graphics by the way so even I was interested in looking at it and they've just brought out report after report and their latest retrofit guide is superb 
what they're looking at are the things that need to be looked at. They just need the legislation to support them. And in, in the UK, we need the tax incentives to be pro-retrofit rather than anti-retrofit. For the last five years, it's been a transformative time and the last two years even more. So it's only when you've got scorched hair and wet feet that you're going to do something about it. And I, I have been surprised so far with COP26 that you know, there isn't a world leader that hasn't been affected profoundly or whose country hasn't been affected profoundly by the climate emergency, yet they're still holding off. It's amazing. At least the discourse has changed at this point. Now, now we, you know, as everyone is saying, we need action. Yeah, as long as it can stay in the news and be part of the political discussion post-COP. But we do need the right legislation and incentives, encouraging the right sort of tax laws as well. So you're working on a, an exciting pavilion for Glyndebourne Opera that uses a range of locally scavenged materials like champagne corks, oyster shells and reject underfired bricks. How do you think about this approach to materials in terms of giving buildings a richer material identity compared to generic materials? Well, I, I think it does that exactly. I, th I think that the USP is, if you compare it with food and what we eat, most people eat maybe like six or seven different types of things when really there's thousands of things we could be eating. And uh, chefs who have their sort of zero waste restaurants, for example, and one of the ways they do it is by using every element of that vegetable. So the leaves that would normally be thrown away. We're having a similar sensibility when we're putting together the ingredients for a building and going to a client and saying, you know, you've got a lot of stuff on site that we could use, so we don't have to import it in. You know, some of them get really quite excited about that. So in the case of Glyndebourne Opera House, it's a thing that attracts a huge carbon footprint. They have regulars who come by helicopter, you know. So it's a proper opera house. It's got an international reputation. But interestingly, the client, uh, Gus Christie, who runs it at the moment, it's the family business. Before he was um, asked to take over the business, he was a wildlife photographer very much informed by the natural world. And so one of the first things he did about 10 years ago is, is get a, a massive wind turbine on site. It was the one and only mega wind turbine on the South Downs. And uh, he got it in there before the South Downs was designated a national park. And he had to get David Attenborough to uh, get on his side, otherwise it wouldn't happen. But it creates more energy than that site consumes. So in that case, we've got a client who's interested. But the idea that because all those people going there, they're consuming food, they're creating waste streams. We just identify that. And luckily, we say, well, that's, that's a resource for us. And, but for me as an architect, it's not something I can do on my own. Luckily, there are just these emerging companies who are dealing with this stuff. One of the reasons I really am optimistic is because we've got different types of companies, startup companies and even older companies who are interested in dealing with the, these material sources or resources that would normally just be discarded. So we're working with Biome, who are a UK-based company. And there's companies all over the world doing this, by the way, but they're doing research into mycelium products. And they're just about to get their British Board of Agriment certificate for their insulation product. That's really exciting because that insulation performs as well as the nastiest plastic stuff you can get. But it has a far better fire rating. And of course, it has an end of life strategy, which is it's going to be compost. We've detailed up the building to allow for this biome insulation. 
it's got an R rating, the same as the nastiest, um, uh, yeah, I won't name a product, but expanded foam plastic insulation out there, which is amazing. They're going to market it at the same cost. So I'm not even having to hide the cost from clients. So we just can't wait to use it, but we won't be, it won't be being used until it's got its BBA certificate. So that requires quite a lot of buy-in from the client to collect all this stuff. Yeah, it does. But, but uh, interestingly, Biome are doing it as well. So the clients are having to collect this stuff and separate the waste anyway. They're doing that anyway just to send it off to Lewis District Council. They've got a bin of food waste anyway. They've got glass. They've got these things separate. So literally, Biome have just been collecting it. The, the glass isn't Biome. We've got this other consultant we work with called Local Work Studio. And this is where research and practice really pays dividends because another project we did with the Waste House, we took off the carpet tiles, which is the original finish of the Waste House for a bit of it. And then we put on these tiles that were made out of oyster shells. So the oyster shells were a waste stream from a local restaurant that threw away 55,000 oyster shells a year. Oyster shells are calcium carbonate, which is the same as limestone. Limestone makes cement. We basically made Roman concrete out of these oyster shells. So you fire some of the oyster shells to create quicklime and you break up the other oyster shells to make the aggregates mix in some water and you've got the concrete mix. And so we've got these concrete tiles made out of oyster shells. Then the organic stuff is over to Biome who could either grow the insulation using grass cuttings from the site because that's the food stuff for the insulation, uh, the mycelium to grow or they're binding food waste into tiles. But uh, yeah, so we're lucky, I mean, I say we're lucky, we've found some amazing suppliers who are interested. I mean, Biome are doing this stuff for Google. Uh, it's, it's been done at quite a scale in some areas as well. So that's what's uh, quite exciting. The other thing is the frame of the building is uh, made out of timber, which was cut on site. So unfortunately in the Southeast, we've got ash dieback, Ash is an amazing timber. So we, um, our client, uh, client one had to cut down 400 trees. We've used some of those trees to be the structure of the building. We don't have the supply chain issues that a lot of construction projects have because <laughs> we're not importing our stuff in. It's there already. We're not building cheaper because there are other issues with using local stuff. It doesn't cost less, but at the moment, it's easier to quantify when the building would be built, how long it would take and how much it would cost. So when you're using, for example, having local chalk fired to, uh, to make lime for, for these tiles, how do you balance using new materials in order to reuse others and also inputting energy into it? Is it like a spreadsheet procedure of factoring in current grid CO2 intensity or or is it about imagining systems of material use that could be fossil fuel free? Yeah, I mean, I'd advocate reuse before recycling. So just to be clear, if we're firing oyster shells as a carbon footprint and we're recycling, some of that is trying to just do things that are thought provoking. So 55,000 oyster shells just from one restaurant is the statistic, isn't it? That's a lump of stuff. So just think of what other stuff is around. But I'd always advocate reuse of a thing before recycling because any recycling process is going to create a carbon footprint. So if we can use underfired bricks that are a waste stream from the brick uh, factory near us, underfired bricks can't be put outside, but you can make internal partitions out of them. Do that. Do that before 
creating oyster shell tiles, for example. So that, that's the way we do it. But what's been amazing, and this is another thing that's happened the last couple of years, there are so many different consultants, whether structural engineers, environmental engineers, or even architects, who are using the tools that do the embodied carbon calculations. So we're working with Elliot Wood on that little pavilion, and we're working with them because they can work out the embodied carbon footprint of the structure that we're employing on site. We're about to employ our own in-house carbon cruncher for all the other bits <laughs> as well. So what I'm going to be doing with projects moving forward, saying this, we're not knocking down that tower block. That's the carbon saved. I want to do that calculation because it's quite straightforward. Uh, just to say, if you leave it alone, that's what you're saving. You know, that's an approach that Lacatan and Vassal have. I don't think they do the carbon calculations on their projects, but to not demolish a tower block and adapt it rather than demolish yes. it is obvious. But we're in the world now, Hattie, where we need to evidence this. That's where our world of sustainable designs change because a lot of what I've done in practice has been informed by science, but it's also informed by experience. And that's not good enough now. We have got to say, this is how we meet the RIBA climate Absolutely. Uh, challenge, you know, or this is how we meet the LETI guidelines. Architects have always designed intuitively, and that goes a long way. But times have changed, and we now need to be able to measure and evidence certain aspects of our work. I wanted to shift gears now and ask you a little bit about your teaching. So you've taught at the University of Brighton for many years, and with all the ACAN student group activism, do you see a change in the appetite of students for this agenda? I do. This is interesting because uh, I've done a bit of work with Scott McCauley of the Anthropocene Architecture yes. School. It's still difficult. Now, I, I do buy into Scott's position here, which is we're still not teaching the right stuff or the right stuff isn't prominent enough. It might be being taught, but it's one of many things. And there are still people saying sustainability is not what we do. That's for someone to sweep up in the tech team or something like that, you know. So, uh, but students are demanding different things now. The universities seem to be taking it seriously and adapting and updating their courses to reflect what students need. Because at the end of the day, students will go where the curriculums are, what they need to be. Because remember, we're sort of teaching the, uh, the Friday strikers now. You know, I'm really um, enthused and inspired by the young people on this planet who are really doing the right thing and, and saying the right thing. And it took them to do it. They've changed our world, Hattie. We couldn't do it. It was the kids that have changed the agenda Absolutely. in a positive way. So when students are presented with different design units to choose from, they can seem quite esoteric and hard to understand what they're really about until you've got stuck into it. So have you got any tips for students about how they might judge sustainability claims of different units? I, at the moment, I run um, at this undergraduate school. I'm in charge of technology and professional practices. And for me, it's been quite fulfilling because that's where a lot of movement's happening in, in the, what I'm interested in. So um, this is just before lockdown. I, I've got this big box of different materials, eco-friendly organic ones, but some you know, proper old school petrochemical stuff. And I put it out, put them out there into the audience. And I say to the students, right, they've all got little labels on. You've got 10 minutes to find out these what these materials are online and find the sustainability statement from all those different companies. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, before you tell me anything, 
here's a little word from Greta Thunberg. And it was her Our House is on Fire talk. You've just had a look at those statements online. Please tell me what's BS and what isn't. What's your point of view? Is this just BS greenwashing or what? And that gets them really energised. Now, with that sensibility, George, right, you're getting a pitch from this unit master. We don't call it that in, <laughs> in Brighton. Now, yes, can, can you smell the BS? And it, you know, it does cause a little bit of a problem. And it's sort of creative tension. We challenge the studios to uh, step up basically so the students know that they're getting it from me from the point of view of professional practice they're getting it from a, a, me and the team i've got 10 people with me in the technology team and they'll, they'll you know we'll be quizzing those designs as they're developed we'll be quizzing the briefs and so yeah from the point of view of how do they choose i think they can they can smell the greenwash. Okay, we've got one last question for you. In a previous episode, we talked to Barnabas Calder about his wonderful new book about how the Industrial Revolution was a process of replacing human and animal labor with energy from fossil fuels. So reusing materials, like the medieval use of Roman brick for new buildings, is a low energy approach, but it often requires more human labor than specifying something new. And Anna Herringer, in our sixth episode, she talked to us about how building with Earth can create opportunities for the future of a more sustainable way of working. So does this stack up financially? That's the question. More human labor. I think you've got to look at tax again. We're actively encouraged to demolish at the moment. You know, we're going to save your client money if you throw away and get new stuff. How can that be real? It's not real. It's a forced economy. So I just see it as we'll spend a similar amount of money in a different way. But to get there, we will need some incentives to allow the transition. But actually, what you will reduce is the amount of resources you'll consume in the process of designing and constructing your building. And of course, that's going to be good for the planet. So it's not short termism. It's not... It's not a suicide note. It's actually an optimistic, we can work on this place. We can survive on this place in harmony with the natural world, which we need to exist. It's rather fundamental. I think George mentioned the phrase or the word materiality. The issue of having secondhand things, making a new thing, those secondhand things all with their histories and the narratives associated with the secondhand is amazing. You just get this additional complexity and variety yeah. and way of creating. Just imagine if you've got the best designers in the world only mining the Anthropocene. What would you get there? The creativity it requires. It does require that. When we did the Waste House, my job as an architect, you know, I'll say it on record, I'm a pretty good designer. I'm a pretty good architect. I'm okay, all right? My job was transformed. My job was, oh my God, they presented me with all this waste material. What am I going to do with it? That's a different job to look at this thing I've sketched. It's going to look like that. Now you guys go and make it look like that. I don't care how you do it. It's got to look like that. And so that's yeah the thing I'd like to end with. Design industry, step up. You need to use your creative abilities to transform this planet. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. That was fantastic.
Our next guest will be Rachel Houlihan of ORMS, AJ100 Sustainability Champion of the Year, recognized for her work on material passports applied to retrofit. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.